Crossing family, I am so glad we got an opportunity to hang out again this weekend, and we are so glad that you guys are here. I don't know where you're joining from. I don't know if you're joining at one of our locations. I don't know if you're joining us from online or you're joining us from the crossing inside. All I want you to know is we are glad you're here. You're welcomed here. This is a family that loves you and that is for you. And I'm excited that we are able to bring back for week two Tyler McKenzie. You guys fell in love with him last weekend. He preached an incredible message, and we have the opportunity to bring him back this weekend. Not only are you going to enjoy it, and not only are you going to learn from it and hopefully connect with Jesus, but this is also my commitment for you guys to get to know that not all preachers are tall and heavy, that there are actually skinny, fit people who love Jesus. So would you guys please welcome back to the stage Mr. Tyler McKenzie. Uh, you know, when I feel like I'm uh, giving Clayton a high five, it's like, you know, so it's cool. Hey, thanks for having me back, Cross and Fam. This is uh, part three now of a series that we're doing on Surrounded, and today I'm going to talk about crowds. Now, you may recognize this iconic poster or uh, picture right here. Uh, it's, uh, it was actually taken in 1936 in the, uh, the harbor of Hamburg in Germany as a Navy vessel is being christened and then sent off to sea. As you see, the crowd of workers are, uh, are looking at the vessel, and they're all giving the infamous Sieg Heil symbol as a sign of loyalty to the Nazi party and Hitler. Well, all except for one, that is. Uh, this man's name is August Landmesser. And he ain't got no no time for it, does he? Now, I don't know if you know Landmesser's story, but actually from 1931 to 1935, he was a part of the Nazi party. But then this picture was taken in 36. What happened in that year? Well, according to the story, he met a girl, a Jewish girl, and he fell in love. And it's interesting what happens when you wrap your mind around the whole truth. Now, as his story continues to play out, it was not good. He wanted to marry this beautiful woman he'd fell in love with. The government would not allow him to. So they went ahead and got married anyways outside of the official blessing of the Nazis. They had a couple kids, but his wife was eventually turned uh, over to a concentration camp, and he was arrested and thrown into prison. Basically, his life was destroyed. And yet, 80 years later, we look back at a picture like this, and it inspires us. He suffered for what was good. He was willing to resist popular culture and majority morality. He stood out from the crowd. And today, it inspires us. And you know, when we see a picture like this, I know what all of us think. We're thinking, that's right, August Landmesser stood out and so do I. I'm like him. Only problem is that most of us aren't. I'm just, just keeping it real. But, but let's be honest, the crowd is seductive. The crowd is magnetic. And for many of us, without even noticing, we just sort of melt into this tribe or slide into that crowd in order to fit in. Let me give you a cultural example of this to illustrate it. It has a little less teeth, um, so uh, you know, most of us wrap our, our minds around it. Um, so when I was a kid, this will date me. You'll be able to figure out how, how old I am. 
When I was a kid, uh, if you wanted to own your favorite songs, you could do it in one of two ways. Uh, you could either uh, get a CD, part of the CD generation. Um, my parents had some cassette tapes, so I had some cassette tapes. It's mostly like uh, Christian music and George Strait. So I wanted to expand my horizons just a little bit. Nothing wrong with George Strait. Check yes or no. Love it. Okay, but, but I, you know, I needed some Will Smith in my life. So I got, I got, a, I got, a, I got some CDs. Um, or the other way you could get music when I was a kid was uh, you would wait for it to come on the radio. Do you all remember this? And then you would hit record on your boombox and record it on to, uh, to a cassette tape. I just am curious, and participate with me at every campus here. Just by a show of hands, let's date the audience. Raise your hand if you were a part of the I made my own mixtape generation. Anybody? Make your own mixtape? Okay. I look around. I want everybody to look around at your campuses, because this is what we would call the older generation. Yeah. Now, raise your hand real quick if, uh, if you burnt your own CDs. That was like your, okay, if you're a CD burner, right? Now I want you to look around, look around, look around at your campuses, look around, because uh, this, uh, this is what we'd call the getting older generation. So I'm going to tell you, go tell your 14-year-old that you burnt CDs when you were a kid, and they're going to be like, with a lighter? Or like, what do you mean, Dad? Because it's just not, it just doesn't jive. Now, if you're a part of the burning your CDs generation like me, you're also part of the pirate generation. You're a pirate. Did you know this? Okay, let me prove to you you're, uh, that you're a card-carrying pirate, all right? Does uh, anybody recognize this logo right here? Go ahead. What is it? Napster. Napster, right? This is the Napster logo, born in 1999. How about this logo right here? LimeWire. This, this audience knows this a little too well. Born in 2000. Basically, these peer-to-peer networks were incredibly popular because what you could do is you could put them on your computer and download whatever song you wanted to for free. Now, believe it or not, musicians didn't like this. Sales plummeted. Lawsuits were filed. Even some really famous musicians, like Dr. Dre, Metallica, they were all standing up against this. Uh, Metallica's lead drummer, uh, Lars Ulrich, said this. Uh, He said, if uh, we're going to sell our music on the Internet, in whatever way we so choose, we cannot do that if the guy next door is giving it away for free. Now, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on this, but I participated a bit in the, you know, Napster and, and LimeWire. But I had friends in my dorm that downloaded thousands upon thousands upon thousands of songs. Like they had uh, like external hard drives for just their music. Now, one of the worship leaders at my church, Northeast, his name's Aaron, uh, he told me recently, he goes, it's not that much better in 2022. Uh, Aaron has produced enough music now to where he's got uh, over a million uh, streams on Spotify. And I was like, over a million streams? Dude, you must be rich. And uh, you know what he said to me? <laughs> he said, nah, you know how many of those million streams have made me? Less than $4,000. Why? Well, here's the math. Every stream on Spotify is about two-fifths of a penny, which means in order to make a dollar, you have to get 263 streams. And most musicians will tell you, that's stealing. That's just criminal. It may not prevent Kanye from getting rich, but what about the local artist in your town, right? It's trying to make a living. That's stealing, and it's kind of hard. 
kind of hard to deal. Now, the reason why I bring this up today is because I, this is an, a fascinating moral phenomenon for us to study together. You see, what happened was we took a globally accepted moral norm that had been traditionally held by generations upon generations previous to us and contemporary to us, stealing, like pretty much everybody has thought stealing is bad. And all of a sudden, we just moved the compass on it. I remember talking about this in college, uh, and uh, some of my friends would be like, well, Metallica doesn't need the money. That's probably right. They're probably doing just fine, but it's still stealing. Well, don't judge me. Get the log out of your own eye. I got a log in my eye. You got a log in yours, though, as well. It's stealing. Like, I just want you to notice. I want you to see how quickly we can take a traditionally embraced, globally recognized moral norm and just move it. And why? Because it benefited us and nobody else seemed to care. Everyone was doing it. It's the power of the crowd. Now, to be clear, I don't think crowds are just like automatically bad. You know, just because there's a majority morality around something or just because there's a crowd surrounded by something, it doesn't disqualify it from goodness or health. Uh, I just think we should be very suspicious of it. We are talking about this uh, not long ago, Clayton. C- crowds, crowds can be a very fickle thing. And the problem with crowds is that they move us over time. Uh, look at the history of both the DNC and the GOP in our country. And what you'll see is that They've moved beliefs over the last 50 to 100 years. And what happens is people in the party who find their identity therein oftentimes move with them. It's the same thing with many of our crowds. So I'm just saying we should be very suspicious. We should be careful when we find ourselves in a crowd, especially today. Today, with the strength of public relations and advertising and social media, in order to manipulate our behavior, we should be especially careful when we find ourselves in a crowd. I want to show you a picture of the, uh, the modern father of PR manipulation. Uh, meet Edward Bernays. This is Bernays right here. Uh, Bernays is actually the nephew of Sigmund Freud. So what Bernays did was he took his uncle's Uh, insights on psychology, and he basically applied it to PR, advertising in the 1920s. And you should Google this guy's achievements. He got Calvin Coolidge reelected by changing his stern demeanor. Uh, He overthrew the Guatemalan government. Uh, You can go to the next slide. Uh, So that he could sell bananas He convinced us that bacon and eggs were breakfast foods. Did you know that? Did you ever wonder why we eat bacon and eggs for breakfast? Like, why do we do that? Is it in the Bible? Is it in in the Bible? Okay, no, no, it's not in the Bible. Okay, bacon, anyways, that's another sermon. It's not in the Bible, no. The reason why we eat bacon and eggs for breakfast is because in the 1920s, uh, was it, I think it was the Beechwood Packing Company decided they wanted to sell more bacon, so they hired uh, Edward Bernays. He went out, did some study, found that uh, people during the 1920s ate pretty light breakfasts. It was like a juice or a coffee with a piece of bread. Then he went out and surveyed doctors. Doctors said it would actually be healthier for people to eat heartier breakfasts, and so he put together an ad campaign. 5,000 doctors say that you should eat a bigger breakfast. It's good for your health, and wham, how about some bacon and eggs? Here we are 100 years later, and I ain't mad about it. I love bacon. I'm just saying, notice how they can move us. 
Maybe my favorite uh, Bernays accomplishment was his Torches for Freedom campaign. He actually convinced women in the 20s that cigarettes, smoking cigarettes, was a part of women's equality. In the 1920s, it was okay for men to smoke cigarettes, but it was dishonorable for women to do so. So what Bernays did was he capitalized on first wave feminism. And he said, hey, you want to be equal to the men? Light one up. He even had, you know what the torches for freedom is? It's the cigarette, okay? And he even had women march in the 1929 Easter Day Parade, smoking cigarettes in fashionable clothes in order to push the message out. Now, in 1929, he published his book called Propaganda on how to manipulate people. And this was his key argument. He said, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government. It's kind of spooky. An invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. Our minds are molded. Our tastes are formed. Our ideas suggested, largely by men we've never heard of. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or in our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. So his belief is that behind all the moral outrage today, behind all the fashions, behind all the activist movements and favored brands, there is an invisible government telling us the things that we should believe, the things that we should shout, the things that we should buy, the people that we should support. And they're really good at it. Now he wrote this in 1928. Think about how much more sophisticated they are today. Uh, today we're being manipulated through a type of technology called surveillance technology. You ever heard of it? It's a, a coin. Uh, it's a term coined by Shoshana Zuboff. She's a Harvard b- uh, business professor. Uh, and uh, basically, okay, here's what sur- surveillance technologies is: technologies that you actually welcome into your life. This is not like Orwell's screens that are installed in everybody's home in his book. You know, like so the government can spy on you. These aren't enforced or inflicted upon you. You welcome these into your life. These are technologies you welcome into your life because they aid your lifestyle, smartphones, um, or provide convenience or offer entertainment. All the while, they gather detailed personal data about you and then they analyze it with sophisticated algorithms to predict your behavior in order to pitch you goods and services tailored to your preferences. So just walk through a day with me, okay? You wake up in the morning, uh, your uh, alarm goes off, and you go for a run. Or maybe you go work out. While you're working out, your Whoop Band or your fit, uh, Fitbit uh, tracks all of your vitals, and then it uploads it to the owner of the app. Then you come in, you sit down for breakfast, uh, you know, you have, have something to eat, and you get on your email, you handle a couple emails, right? While you're on email, Gmail is scanning all the words that you type for keywords in order to target you with ads later that day. 
Then you get on social media. Everything that you like, everything that you forward, everything that you share, uh, everything that you comment on, it's recorded. And a data profile is built on you so that they can target you with ads later. Then you get on blogs or you get on a news website. And cookies, not the chocolate chip kind, Cookies are embedded in your browser. Everything you say to Siri, recorded and monetized. Everything you say in front of Alexa, recorded and monetized. I kid you not, not long ago, I was talking about ice cream. Then I pulled out my phone and got on Instagram and Ben and Jerry's was the first ad. Every time you use your credit card, That data is recorded and monetized. And then at the end of the day, after you've used your smart TV and your smart refrigerator and your smart phone and your smart security system, you put your phone down on the nightstand, you go to sleep, and all that data is uploaded into the cloud to be used against you. And with this wealth of information, understand the invisible government knows more about you than you do. And with that, they're able to target you with just the right ads or just the right messaging in order to manipulate our thoughts and behaviors. This is one of the great discipleship challenges for the church today. Competing with the invisible government. Like we gotta realize, when you go on social media, you're not the the customer, you're the product. Social media is designed to distract you, addict you, then chop your attention up into little bits and sell it off to the highest bidder. That's the business model. That's why you don't pay to be on social media. Other people do. And, and there are multi-million dollar organizations like the DNC, like the GOP, like all the major brands you know that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars in order to grab your attention. We are being evangelized constantly by competing gospels to the gospel of Jesus in classes at school, in shows on TV, 24-7 breaking news and articles online, smartphone notifications, influencer posts on Instagram, celebrity commencement speeches, throwaway comments from coworkers. You can't pump your gas at the gas station without a screen advertising you. Men, you can't go to the bathroom at B-dubs without a screen literally advertising to you. I can't watch sports without having to consider justice, racism, sexuality, gender inequality, and patriotism because it is all the relentless background noise of our life. And it is so easy to just gradually come to assume over time that majority morality is reality. That popular culture knows best that the crowd is where I belong. But it begs the question of all of us today, I wonder what Jesus thinks about crowds. I wonder what crowd he would want me to belong in. Now thank God for scripture, because in the gospels, particularly Mark's, we have lots of data about Jesus and his interactions with crowds. In fact, did you know that scholars call Mark's gospel the gospel of the crowds because Mark emphasizes crowds far more than any of the others. So I want to build with you with the rest of our time today a theology of crowds in which we look at Jesus' give and take with them. You ready for this? Okay, so there's four big points on how Jesus interacts with crowds. Here's the first one. First, uh, Jesus consistently draws crowds. He consistently draws them. I've got a brief outline for you. If you're a note taker or a Bible nerd, you can go check me later. But it all starts for him in Mark 1, 28. After he heals a demoniac and his street cred 
begins to grow. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if you, heal, like, if you went to work this week and you healed a demoniac, Clayton's going to call you and be like, what up, man? Like your street cred's going to start growing. Now, in Mark 145, the crowds really begin to take off, though, because he heals this one leper. I've got to read this passage to you because I think it's just hilarious. Starting in 144, it said, Jesus said, see, he's talking to the leper he just, uh, he just healed. He said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but just go and show yourself to the priests, offer a... Uh, 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 and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Verse 45, what did the leper do? Instead, he went out, began to proclaim it freely, to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country, and people came to him from every quarter. So what was the tipping point for Jesus' ministry? One healed leper. One healed leper that was so fired up that he'd received healing from the Messiah that he would not shut up about it. And I just got a feeling that the reason why the crossing is going through some of its most explosive growth in its history right now is because they ain't just one leper up in here. There's hundreds of them. And I would just encourage you, your best days will still be ahead of you as long as you continue to go out and just not shut up about Jesus. Now back to our uh, slide here. Uh, uh, okay, so we got 145, the crowds explode. Well, by the time we get to chapter three, the crowd so, grows uh, so big, it's dangerous. Check out 3.9. Uh, it says, uh, Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd so they would not crush him. 3.20, it says, and the crowd came together so that they, Jesus and the disciples, could not even eat. In fact, if you read after this in verse 21, Jesus' family comes up and they start to really show concern for Jesus. Like I can imagine Mary being like, back up, he ain't doing no more healing until he eats his dinner. Get some veggies in front of this boy. Like honestly, that's where it's at. Now uh, uh, back to our outline here. Uh, by, uh, in 310, it's in, go back and read this later, but in 310, we actually start to see the psyche of the crowd though. We get to see their motives because it tells us that the crowds come with a consumption, a consumer mindset. They come because of what they can get rather than what they can give, which is important to know about crowds. Then when we finally get to chapter six, we see the pinnacle of Jesus' crowd growth because he feeds the 5,000. I think the reason why they wrote down this number is because it was a big number. Well, we gotta count this crowd. What the scriptures say is that it was 5,000 men, so if you add the women and children that were there, it could be 2X, 3X more. Incredible. So Jesus draws a crowd. He could draw a crowd. Now, here's the second thing you know about Jesus and crowds. Second, Jesus compassionately loves the crowds. He compassionately loves the crowds as well. So it's, uh, it's interesting. In the pinnacle moment, right before he feeds the 5,000 in uh, Mark chapter 6, do you know what's going on? The disciples have just come back from a mission trip. He'd sent them off in pairs. They've come back. They've got some stories to tell Jesus. They're excited about seeing the power of God work through their lives. And it says they're hungry and tired. So Jesus is like, let's go on a men's retreat. Let's just get away. Uh, let's talk about it, right? And, and as they're going, well, pick up in Mark 6. You can read the text for yourself. It says they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Many saw them going, right? And they recognized them. So they hurried there disrupted the, the, the you know, men's retreat or whatever, and uh, they were on foot all the towns, uh, from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. Next slide, it says, as he went ashore, Jesus saw the crowd, and I wouldn't have been annoyed by the crowd, to be honest. I'm trying to get away with my friends here. Okay? But it says, Jesus saw the crowd, and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I would have been annoyed with the crowd, but Jesus Loved the crowd. 
taught the crowd, fed the crowd. Now, that's the first two points. Jesus' relationship wasn't always so peachy, though, with the crowd. Point number three here. Jesus draws them. Jesus compassionately loves them. But what you'll also see is that Jesus strategically resists the crowd as well. Strategically. Uh, Next slide here. Uh, There are several references here of how Jesus asks uh, both spirits and people to keep his identity secret. The spirits listen. The people don't always. (laughs) We see in 630 through 34 that Jesus wants to withdraw from the crowd into solitude. We also see in Mark chapter 4 one of the most puzzling passages in all the Bible. Because in this passage, Jesus confesses to his disciples that he actually designs parables in order to puzzle crowds. Have you ever studied this before? Okay, so it's so, stra- so strange. Um, start in, uh, in chapter 4, verse 1. Okay, it's, it's, Just follow with me here because it's just one of those weird things. Uh, this is during the initial wave of Jesus' ministry. The crowds are starting to explode. And so for, uh, verse 1 it says, He began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there. And uh, while, the, while the whole crowd was beside the sea and on the land, he began to teach them many things in parables. Now after that, he teaches the parable of the sower. You may be familiar with that one or not. But apparently the people in the crowd and the disciples didn't really totally understand what Jesus was saying. So later that evening, the disciples approach Jesus and they ask him for an explanation on it. This is what Jesus says about parables. Verse 10, it says, When he was alone, those who were around him Along with the twelve, so this isn't a crowd, right? Smaller group. They asked him about the parables. And he said to them, read, this is just strange, y'all. He says to them, to you uh, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables. In order that they may indeed look but not perceive, and may indeed listen but not understand, so that it may not turn again and be forgiven. Now, this is an incredibly complex passage that uh, we do not have the time to deal with in full today. But here's what I want you to notice. Jesus admits that he creates parables in order to puzzle the crowd. So it beckons the question, how then does the crowd come to a fuller understanding of Jesus and his teachings? Well, we actually see it modeled for us in this text right here. You have to move from the crowd to the core. How do the disciples come to an understanding? Well, they leave the crowd and they get around a bonfire with Jesus later that night and he takes them to a deeper understanding of the text. Uh, Look at uh, 4.33. It says, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. So one might go as far to say... That Jesus knew the crowd was a good work, but it was not his great work. His great work wasn't feeding the 5,000 per se, but it was discipling the 12 intensely for three and a half years. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you today, if the summation of your relationship with Jesus is just coming and sitting in the crowd once or twice a month, you're missing out on something. Now, last key point here about Jesus' relationship with crowds. 
Jesus consistently draws him, compassionately loves him, strategically resists him, but also Jesus courageously defies the crowds. Mark chapter 15, verse 12, it says, Pilate spoke to them again. We're now at Jesus' crucifixion, and them is the crowd. What do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? But they, the crowds, shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. A week earlier, they were saying Hosanna as he rode in on Palm Sunday on a donkey. A week later, they are shouting, crucify him. And why? Bottom line is his agenda was not theirs. So they crucified him for it. He was a Messiah, just not the sort of Messiah that they wanted. They wanted a Messiah who would wage peace with a sore. He was a, he was a Messiah that would wage peace with a cross. And he had the audacity, this Jesus, to look at the crowds and call them to carry their cross. Mark chapter 8. Check out this statement to the crowd. It says, Jesus called the crowd with his disciples. And he said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And I got to imagine that that lesson didn't land well with the crowds. Because crowds don't come for what they can give. They come for what they can get. Crowds don't carry crosses. They put people on them. Now, quick review. Can you throw the four up there again altogether? And here's what I found. This is, this is fascinating to me. I found that if you stay in the crowd, eventually you will experience all the things the crowds experience in Jesus with the church today. Do you know that I've been, okay, I've been in ministry for 10 years. It is incredible to me as I was praying over this message how the crowd's experience with Jesus maps on the crowd's experience with Jesus' body, the church today. The church is the physical embodiment of Jesus. We're his hands and feet. We're his physical representation in the world today. And I found that the, re, I mean, the relationship is so close. First off, you will feel drawn into the church crowd. Many of you come on Sundays because... There's an energy here. You can sense the presence of God. Next, you will certainly feel loved when you come into the church crowd. Somebody's going to greet you out of the door and hand you a cup of coffee. Somebody's going to remember your name. You'll get practical teaching that changes your life. Somebody's going to love on your kid. If you get sick, somebody's going to show up at your hospital room or they're going to send you a meal. That's an amazing thing. But you also feel resistance eventually if you stay in the crowd. Eventually, if you stay in the crowd for too long, then your relationship with Jesus starts to get stale. But you don't want to own that. So oftentimes, you just blame that. People will be like, well, you know, I, I just, this church doesn't take people deeper. Somebody needs to, they, we need to go deeper here. But then when someone's like, well, hey, come and get in a small group then. Well, I tried one of those, and those people were weird. Well, hey, come get in a Bible study then. Well, you know, I don't have six Tuesdays in a row. Travel ball. Well, hey, just read this book in your spare time then. Well, I'm just not a reader, you know. Now look, I want you to notice, it's not that anybody stopped loving you. It's not that there's like not a seat open for you in the crowd every Sunday. There always is. The coffee's warm. I mean, come on, come hang out with us on the weekend. It's just that oftentimes people just tend to move on to those who actually want to be a part of the core. 
not just the crowd. You see, the crowd wants Jesus to change their world, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the core wants to help build his world. And that's the next level. These people, the core, they aren't consumers, they're contributors. They ain't fans, they're followers. Jesus knew that to change the world, he would need to not just feed the 5,000, but disciple the 12. Now, here's the deal. If you stay in the crowd too long, eventually, I mean, you're not going to crucify Jesus. Like, you're not going to crucify Clayton. I would feel like, I mean, like, you're not going to crucify him. But I found that people would just tend to leave. Eventually, eventually folks just, just sort of bow out. Because Jesus is constantly summoning us beyond the crowd. Again, one more time, Mark 8, 34. He called the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And you know, we would all like to pretend that if Jesus were around today, he'd be on our side, right? Like he'd vote like us, he'd tweet like us, he'd talk like us, he'd think all the same things that we do, same bumper stickers on his car, same stickers on his computer, right? Like he would be on the same page as us, but the reality is, is that if Jesus would hear, was here today, he'd be looking all of us in the eyes saying, deny yourself, and take up your cross. He'd treat all of us like he did the disciples, like the rich young ruler, and he would look straight through us into the idols of our heart and call us to repent. The question is, would we? Would we just remain in the crowd, or would we move to the core? Would we follow him to the bonfire later, take the next step and sacrifice, or would we just shout, crucify this fool? I'm tired of hearing about self-denial. I'm, I'm out of time. I'm out of time. So, so let me conclude this way. It, it can feel lonely. It can feel lonely when you leave the crowd. It can, it can be disorienting. It feels like a loss of relationships. It can even feel like a loss of a worldview altogether. But I want you to know today that it's worth it. Because there's a better crowd than whatever crowd you're in. See, the beautiful thing about following Jesus is that when you make an individual decision for him, you are incorporated through baptism into the family of God. Or in other words, you get a new crowd, the Jesus crowd. You've got a new squad that you can count on and that you can rely on. See, there's this amazing uh, passage in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus and the rich young ruler, it kind of goes down, the rich young ruler, he leaves sad because he can't give away all of his money. And Peter freaks out. You remember this? Peter freaks out and he's like, who, who, can be, who can be saved then? And Jesus looks at Peter and he says to them, anyone who sacrifices for me in this life will be given a hundred times more in this life. And when we read this, we're like, is Jesus a prosperity preacher? Like, is he telling us, put $10 in a plate and you'll get, you know, what is that? What math is that? 10,000. I'm, I'm a Bible reader, not a math. You'll get 10,000. No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not prosperity theology. What he's talking about here is the relational wealth that you gain when you step in to his crowd, to the Jesus people, when you move from crowd into the core. Like you get the sisters that you never had growing up, the brothers that you never had growing up. You get the spiritual mothers and the spiritual fathers that you never had growing up. You get the crazy uncle too. We won't point him out in the room, but we all know, right? 
You get the multicultural perspective that you never had, the multi-generational perspective that you never had. You got the friends that you never had, the wise accountability that you never had, the loving affirmation that you uh, never had, the last 10% speaking pastor and community that you never had, a financial safety net that you never had, and an army of strong backs willing to bear any burden that you carry day in and day out. 100 times more, Jesus, 100 times more indeed and some. Look, I don't want to romanticize this. The church ain't perfect. This is a great church. But, but we get a lot wrong here. But isn't that what unites us? The fact that we all know we get a lot wrong, but the one thing we get right is Jesus. So look, I am inviting you today to move. I'm inviting you today to get up out of your seat and decide to move from the crowd to the core. What does it look like for you? Is it baptism? Is it prayer? Do you need to engage with Scripture? Do you need to get into a group? Do you need to just find your people or meet your pastor? I don't, I don't know what the next step is, but in this moment today, I'm calling you to take it. I believe Jesus is calling you to take it. So right now, we're going to move into a time of decision. Today is your day. Move out of the crowd.